Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spectrum Talks, physical therapy podcast with your host, Sandra Terrazas. I'm a physical therapist and CEO of Spectrum Therapy Consultants in El Paso, Texas. I want to do a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it should not be replaced with any type of medical treatment. So always seek out for help when you need it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Spectrum Talks, where we talk about physical therapy. And my guest today is Kim Sanchez, and she is the curator of our podcast, but she also serves as a great... um, Yes, because she asks the questions that a normal, everyday person would ask as a patient uh, regarding the ailments that we're going to go over with physical therapy today. So today our topic is going to be rotator cuff tears, which is a type of a shoulder injury. So that's what our, our plan is today to kind of inform everybody about a little basic anatomy, the type of injuries that are associated with that, and the symptoms that most patients have. So we'll go ahead and get started, Kim. So let's just say hello, you know, hello to everybody, yes. and let's get started. So a lot of people, uh, they'll be having pain in their shoulder. How do you differ- differentiate the just normal pain and it being a rotator cuff injury? It's a million-dollar loaded question because <laughs> there are so many things that could uh, – uh, happen to your shoulder that would cause pain from something as easy as a as a sprain or a strain to the shoulder or to an actual tear or a right. rupture and there are so many muscles that surround the shoulder that are deep and superficial and are are big levers that that also move the shoulder so it could be an infinite amount of things uh, at any point so and i guess the most important thing is to ask the patient what happened yeah, and I was, that was going to be my next question. Uh, when you're doing evals, what's the most uh, typical way that someone injures the rotator cuff? Is it at a job? Is it just doing something uh, extracurricular? <laughs> I don't know, playing baseball on the weekend or something. Um, what's the yeah, usual? It could, be, it could be everything that you just talked about. It could be that somebody has had a, a chronic tendonitis where they have this overuse injury mm-hmm. of something that they do regularly. It could be, depending again on age groups, it could be somebody who does a lot of overhead weight training. It could right. be somebody who's in an occupation that uses their arms to, to mobilize boxes or does a lot of reaching with a load or carries uh, refrigerators from a truck load, uh, from a truck to, to a, a warehouse or to somebody's home. It could be somebody at UPS who carries mm-hmm. boxes all the time. So it could be a, an infinite number of things that could be a repetitive tendonitis that can turn into a chronic issue and where the tendon starts to partially tear and then it just tears. And so that would be like one. It could That's more like a, a something that happens over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could also be where, where the joint space, which I'm going to go over here in a bit, where the joint space in the, in the shoulder where the one muscle goes through starts to narrow with impingement or with arthritis and so those bones create like a saw, and they mm-hmm. start to fray that tendon. So that's like something that would be chronic over time. And then you have somebody who might throw a baseball with everything they have, and they haven't done it in two years. Yeah. And then they tear it, and they hear it, they hear a pop, and then they can't move their arm. So it could be something that happens by doing push-ups that I'll, you did it improperly. I have a, a dear friend of mine who was doing push-ups on kettlebells. And he's strong as an ox, but the kettlebell moved 
And he tore his rotator cuff. Oh, so just a simple little <laughs> thing can kind of trigger an injury. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I think I'm the most cautious person. I'm a, I'm a pretty good risk taker, but I'm also very cautious because I know exactly what tendon I'm going to rupture and how long I'm going to be out and how much it's going to cost me. <laughs> so I'm a little more conservative these days to, to be sure that I'm, I'm not hurting myself. Putting yourself at risk. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- that's another thing. Is there like a specific age group that's more susceptible to a rotator cuff or is it kind of even a teenager can suffer a rotator cuff tear? Yeah, even a teenager can do it. You know, the, the people that are most uh, at risk are anybody who use their arms a lot. And so in sports, it could be a swimmer. It could be a quarterback. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, anybody, a baseball player that has anything to do with throwing. And so throwing injuries are common, um, but, you know, some, it could be the one time. Some people think, oh, I, I've always thrown a 80-mile-an-hour ball, but they've been doing it for five years, mm-hmm. and there's little rest in between. And, again, it's something that's that's overused, and then one day you throw that 181-mile-an-hour, and, and there that's it all goes. It takes. Yeah. I <laughs> guess um, – Let's go over the anatomy of a rotator cuff. Yeah. I know it's kind of new to me. I've barely been learning the anatomy. So, mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. So I think sometimes the rotator cuff is a misnomer because it sounds like a cuff, mm-hmm. like one thing. And for, for other, other patients who don't know, they always say, I, I tore my rotator cuff. And, <laughs> and it's actually the cuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the rotator cuff actually has four muscles. It has this big muscle underneath that allows you to rotate your, your arm in, so this motion, mm-hmm. and from this position, this, or I call it the arrest position where you put your hands behind your back. So that's internal rotation. That's a subscapularis muscle. And then we have two in the back that are below, below the level of the, of the spine of the scapula, and one's the teres minor, and the other one's the, the infraspinatus. So both these muscles are in the same orientation, and they rotate externally, so that makes you open the door, and from this position, bring it back. Mm-hmm. And so it's the opposite of the other muscle, and they sit opposite of each other on, on the spine. Okay, And then this little guy, that's the culprit. So this is the supraspinatus muscle. This allows you to bring the arm out. Okay, And so these are the tiny muscles that are found on the scapula. Mm-hmm. And then on top of this, we have superimposed the deltoid. We have the biceps and the triceps, which are mm-hmm. the bigger muscles. But these are the guys that stabilize the scapula for the bigger muscles to do their thing. Okay. So the reason that this muscle is susceptible to any injury, it's the only muscle, as you can see, that goes under a roof. Right. And that roof is connected with the acromion and the back part of the, of the scapula. And so, so that tunnel under there, if the space is compressed, then it starts to pinch at the tendon and so anything that does overhead lifting as you can see with the model it starts to push up on the on the the tendon right okay and when it does that on that tendon what happens is that tendon can start to fray and it will continue to fray sometimes we have partial tears and they sometimes 50 50 they heal on their own Mm -hmm. and other times they continue to rupture and it's a complete rupture so the the biggest uh thing to know is whenever you have a partial rupture, it's very painful. And anytime somebody has to reach or they have to move their arm away from their body or over their head, they'll feel it. They'll (laughs) feel it. It'll be very painful. And when that progresses to a complete tear or a full thickness tear that it completely tears off, there is zero pain. Hmm. So patients will say, wow, I, I, I don't hurt anymore. And then you tell them to raise their arm or they'll tell you, I don't hurt anymore. 
but I can't raise my arm. Right. So now it's, it's zero movement. Like they're like this, trying to lift their arm up, and they can't move it. And that's when we clinically know that that is a full rupture tear. Okay. So uh, you mentioned that if it's a partial tear, there is a chance that it could heal on its own. Um, does that make the person more susceptible to fully tearing it? Or with strengthening in PT, uh, we're able to kind of bring them back to normal where they don't really have to worry. It doesn't have to be a thought in the back of their head like, oh my gosh, I have to worry about my shoulder. Right. That's a great question. So shoulders, the body in general tries to find a way to mend itself. Mm-hmm. And you hear about stories about, you know, especially like with uh, tubal ligations that, you know, I got fixed so I wouldn't have any more babies and I still had a baby mm-hmm. and I still got pregnant. And so because the body starts to try to grow and repair whatever damage is there, <laughs> right. right? And so that's a huge surprise to whoever ends up pregnant because they thought they weren't going to be pregnant anymore. And so with a rotator cuff or any type of tendon, oftentimes the body tries to mend itself and it tries to create scar tissue that turns out to be like super glue and then it'll hold but it'll always have a, a an area of weakness and so all of us can always stand to strengthen more unless you're mm-hmm. in the powerlifting industry or the weightlifting industry we all have the potential to get stronger everywhere and so if we get areas of that shoulder uh, stabilized and the other muscles stronger then then you have a more stable shoulder with a less likelihood of re-injury. You mentioned scar tissue. So will that, um, in the healing process, does that make the person less mobile or does it kind of, I mean, does it really, I think the, the issue, no, it's not an issue. The issue of, of losing mobility is pain. Mm -hmm. So if they're hurting, then, then they're going to lose mobility, but it doesn't have to do with the scar tissue and patients who have this type of a problem will, will refer to an incident that might have done it. So they'll mm-hmm. say, you know what, I did this, this, and this, and that's when I heard the pop, or that's when I heard something, or that's where I felt, felt the pain. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that they will have is that they won't be able to move the arm, either because it hurts or they're afraid to, because mm-hmm. they don't know if they by moving it, it will make things worse. worse. Yeah. And in our industry, we want patients to move their shoulder. Otherwise, the secondary issue is a frozen shoulder. Mm-hmm. And so from lack of mobility, because people are guarding because of pain, then it makes it makes the shoulder stiff. And now the shoulder reacts to being there being an injury. And then the capsule that surrounds the shoulder joint is just like, nope, we're not going to starts to tighten. Mm-hmm. It like guards. And then now you have a frozen shoulder on top of the injury. Another another issue on top of another. Right. So right. We, we talked about um, partial tears. So it, now a person has a full tear. Like you said, they heard they f- they know they can kind of uh, feel where they got injured. They hear a pop. Um, what happens after that? They go to an orthopedic uh, person, um, an orthopedic doctor. It's a variety of things that people or, do. If they're petrified because they know something happened and the pain is intense, they'll go to an ER. Mm-hmm. Okay. Others might wait to go see their internist. Those that are well-versed or that their insurance doesn't require them to go see a primary care doctor mm-hmm. first, then they'll go directly to an orthopedist. A specialist. There's now direct access in, in Texas, so patients can come to us and we can determine clinically what's going on and decide whether it's something that needs to be referred out. We can determine if it's a strain mm-hmm. and that as everything else, you you do, you know, rice, I call it uh, uh, rice and with a D at the end. So you do the rice and the D would be the drugs oh. that you can get over the counter, like, <laughs> right. like Tylenol, uh, Tylenol or... ibuprofen to help with the inflammation. 
and then give it some time and hope that everything works out and and then you know stabilize their shoulders strengthen them and mm-hmm. and most importantly we tell patients what not to do and the things right. they should not be doing is reaching forward or reaching sideways with with a weight to give that tendon some time to heal incidentally Kim a lot of patients also have the number one symptom besides pain is they have the referred pain is actually to the outside of the shoulder and so mm. that's where the referred pattern of a rotator cuff goes and so they think that it's an issue like on their deltoid or that it's an issue out here and, and we're not necessarily yeah, and at we're the digging joint. at the tendon to mm-hmm. see if it's palpable and, and painful and we're testing the strength of that muscle and and so so that's usually a, a clinical sign for us that it's rotator cuff and then we do some exams uh some clinical testing and it confirms what we're, we're thinking Initially, a lot of things will be positive because it's such an acute uh, mm-hmm. situation. But once the, the, the patient seeks medical help from anybody, then the, eventually they do end up in therapy. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's where we see them at whatever Week, uh, point. stop. Yeah. I yeah. Mean. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, about so what happens. If it's something conservative where we presume that there's a strain, which is basically uh, a tendon issue without a tear that Mm -hmm. it's just got strain give it some time you just really challenge that tendon in that position and so let's give it some time and then the the second thing is if we know we have a partial tear then we tell patients what not to do we stabilize preventatives Uh, to prevent it from getting it any worse right from what we do many physicians uh uh, orthopedic physicians and primary care if 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 they're comfortable doing it will actually inject the shoulder to relieve the Mm -hmm. pain with uh with some pain uh, meds and some anti-inflammatory meds. And so that helps us with therapy to be able to progress patients because their pain is better. And then there may be prescribed oral drugs that would be NSAIDs, anti-inflammatories, if Mm -hmm. they don't have a contraindication for being given those medications. And then they come to therapy, and then we have modalities we can address pain with, such as ultrasound, electrical stim, dry needling, and then, of course, to stabilize the shoulder and get the range of motion right. of the shoulder to prevent that that uh, freezing of the shoulder. And if all of those interventions fail, okay, you always have to give the body a chance to heal. Mm-hmm. And if all those interventions fail and the patient is a surgical candidate, then the next process would be surgical Surgery. intervention, right? And that's when we see the patient for a rotator cuff tear rehab. And so the most... Uh, long-term rehabilitative part of a rotator cuff is the length of time that it requires to to heal. So typically one month after surgery, patients are not permitted to use their arm actively because you don't want to contract the tendon and it can detach from, from where it was anchored and fixed. And then the second month they can start to move the shoulder and then the third month, you start loading it with, with weight, weight to strengthen. Right. And so patients have to be very mindful of following all the the precautions and that protocol. Even outside of therapy, which I'm sure is pretty difficult. Yeah. And, and you know, life happens. You have to wash your hair, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to get dressed. So we have to be able to tell patients how best to do it without breaking those those rules mm-hmm. and oftentimes if we have the opportunity to see them before surgery we have them prepare their environment their clothes and everything because they're going to be functioning with one arm that can include thinking about driving and mm-hmm. bathing and the clothes that you need or to wear or even child care because some people have are to 
hold a toddler mm -hmm. and the toddler doesn't understand what just happened. And so, so those, uh, those, uh, that protocol is typically about three months and most patients do fabulous and fantastic. There are other people that definitely turn back to full sports and back to doing push-ups and pull-ups and everything with a rotator cuff tear. They become a whole lot more mindful mm -hmm. of deciding when to challenge themselves because they know what they went through. Even proper body mechanics, just from therapy, learning how your joint moves correctly. Mm -hmm. So you don't, like you say, put yourself in a predicament where you're, you are susceptible to yeah. injuring it again. And in this case, lifting, mm -hmm. uh, most importantly, lifting. And, you know, I have a lot of, of wide variety of age groups that I treat patients for. And I think uh, 20 to 30 is where a lot of men and women really stress with with weight training and they want to do more and more and they want to bench more they want to be able to do 50 pull-ups instead of 20 mm -hmm. and so they challenge their bodies more and more physically and over time they're creating micro tears and micro injuries and then they get to the point where they hurt themselves and we saw this craze with crossfit early on if they're not properly supervised right and so these patients that we have at this age I always ask him, what's the purpose? What, what are you trying to accomplish by lifting more? Is that because you need to get into uh, a fireman academy? Is it because you're trying to get into a law enforcement academy? Or is it purely ego? Is it just ego? Mm -hmm. Because now this is what you're going to contend with and you're not going to be able to lift for three this months. Amount of time. <laughs> for sure three <laughs> right. months and probably six months to get to half of the load that you were previously doing. So we have to be really, really in tune with what... Kind of give them a little reality check also. Like, right. do you want this or weigh out their options? Right. And, and so those are, those are the 50-year-olds that we later see that need a total shoulder replacement, that mm -hmm. need more invasive surgeries because they've beat up their body for so many years. So, you know, we're sometimes in a position to really educate patients to be sure that they comprehend what the big picture in is. the future is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any like interesting, uh, interesting patient story or a good success story that you want to share? They're, they're all success stories. If, if, if they follow their protocol right. and if they take care of everything they're supposed to do at home, we see patients that need to get back to work. That's a success story that they're back able at work. to normal function, right? Normally function. Right, right. And so that, that they need to be able to pick up their toddler. Mm -hmm. Uh, some people, if this happens at work that they're now, you know, they were on workers' comp, but that's not 100% of their salary, so mm -hmm. they're needing to get the rest of their percent to be able to get back to work. To return to light duty than normal. Of course, right. all our athletes who want to mm -hmm. go back and compete, that's also True. that's also important to them. So we have a lot of great success stories. I, I would love to say that success stories are those patients do, that don't require surgical intervention mm -hmm. um, because of the ramifications and the time and the cost of having surgery. So I think those are great success stories where you think that, you know, possibly it's going to require surgery and they respond well to therapy and their bodies start to help them mend and then they don't need surgery. So is that in the majority or do you find that that's usually um, do more people usually just um, they're able to go without surgery or it's truly 50 50. Mm -hmm. It's really 50 50 that that they go one way or the other or they they just can't tolerate the pain anymore. And, and they want to be back at an, at an active lifestyle and they just can't because it hurts so much or they can't mm -hmm. sleep and, or they're tired of every time they accidentally reach that it gets their attention. Mm -hmm. 
and that they can't live like this forever. Right. And so those are the, the ones that are appropriate to, to just go do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just so you don't have to deal with that anymore. Yeah. And for us, which is which insurances don't cover anymore uh, prehabilitation before surgery, for those patients that are that 50-50, that don't respond to therapy, who need the surgery, they're in a much better position to immediately go into surgery mm-hmm. after they've strengthened that, that shoulder joint as best they could and, and gotten a lot of the stiffness out of their motion so that they go on to have surgery and their outcome's even better because they're already mentally prepared for it, number one. Right. And number two, you've already maximized what you, what you could get out of them before surgery. So after surgery, the outcome should be even better. Is it like the muscle, like mind-body connections kind of thing too? Or? Yeah, I think nobody's really ever prepared for a surgery unless mm-hmm. you're having an elective surgery. Right. So, so, and you're still never ever prepared because you realize, uh, I, how am I going to take a shower? Or how am I going to wash my clothes? And Sometimes until after, right. when the surgery is already done, and right. you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think if, if that can be avoided, then then that's the best outcome. And if it's not avoidable, that you have the, the best position for a proper successful post-surgical recovery. And last question. Um, I know that we have protocols here in the clinic. Is it different for every doctor? Do each, Does each orthopedic doctor have like their own set of uh, rotator cuff um, protocols that we need to follow and learn? And That's a great question. We have very good physicians that we work with. And every city and every state all across the country has the best of the best of physicians. And many of them have general guidelines. Mm-hmm. So part of it is that we should understand what those protocols should be. And others, or that they trust that we know what those protocols should right. be. And then we have other physicians that are very precise in the exact protocol that they want followed by the week, by the month, by the year. Mm-hmm. And and those physicians are requesting that for the type of surgical intervention that they did on those tendons and or any procedure. Mm-hmm. And so it depends on on the type of the tear. There's different level one, type one, right. two, three. And, and so, or partial thickness, full thickness. So they're the ones who dictate how they would like their patients to recover. And oftentimes we had been in a very early in my career, therapy was very aggressive with patients. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get as much motion as we could. We wanted them to walk as far as they could. We wanted to start weight training them as quickly as we could. And what happened over time is that we created an injury on top of a post-surgical recovery. Oh. So like you would have like an overuse injury mm-hmm. post-operatively on top of the operative repair. And you challenge that repair. And if you challenge it to the point of failure, the patient needs to go back for a revision, meaning right. back to surgery. Back to step one. <laughs> right, right. And so the reason that the protocols are in, are in place are to protect and prevent what's that. been repaired and mm-hmm. prevent a revision. Because going in twice for the same thing has a lesser, lesser outlook of, of an outcome. And I know, like, sometimes uh, we'll have patients and um, they'll be like, well, when can I start doing this? And it's like, well, that's mm-hmm. we have to follow these. And sometimes it's hard for them to, like, grasp that. Well, but I'm re- I feel like I'm ready. and Right, especially if they're feeling good. And that's one of the things that us as physical therapists during the initial evaluation, mm-hmm. you lay the foundation and say, these are the protocols we have to follow. These are the guidelines we have to do. If you don't comply with this, you're setting yourself up for injury, rupture, and failure. <laughs> and so we just have to be very clear that that message is conveyed. And should they start to test it 
to see if they can, then if they have a little pain, you hope that they're like, okay, now I see why. And yeah. they back off. You hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. You don't want, who don't want uh, revisions or anything like that. Well, today, um, this concludes our rotator cuff uh, session on our podcast. Yes, and thank and you for answering those all my are questions. Good questions, Kim, because I'm sure everybody has those types of questions. And uh, if you should have any questions, I invite you to email us, visit our website, and uh, watch our podcast and share those podcasts yes, with other people. Check out our YouTube and also check out our Spanish version of this podcast. Yeah. So have a great day, everyone, and protect those shoulders. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thank you.